Hi, and welcome to Answers News for December the 2nd, 2020. I'm Georgia Purdom. I'm here with Tim Chafee and Roger Patterson. So I'm with, what is this, B and C team, D team? I don't even I, know. Ken so. thinks I'm on the D team most <laughs> of the time. So When it's Roger and me, it's the tall team. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like a midget today. So anyway, all right. Well, coming up here at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, um, it's starting, uh, it started last week, but continuing today is Christmas Town here at the Creation Museum. So it's a lovely day. It's not real mm -hmm. super cold or anything like that. It's a good time to come out. Looks like the weather's going to be nice um, pretty much the rest of the week. And so we have lots and lots of lights, special food, um, all kinds of great things going on. A what little do you dusting say? of snow right now. A little now. dusting of snow, yes. Makes we got everything that. extra beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and then also at the Ark, same thing. Um, lots of great lights there. Um, I know we have some new um, topiaries that they put lights on from Buddy Davis, who's created, and some are here too. They look really amazing. Um, special programs and food and just all kinds of great things. It's free. All you have to do is pay for parking. So it's a great way to have some good Christmas time with your family and friends. And we have a wonderful studio audience joining us today. So make yourselves known. Come on. <laughs> there we go. This took them a little while. All right. Um, so to get started, our first one's kind of a fun, well, actually our first two are kind of really cool, <laughs> like fun ones. Um, so this is a photo of an atom. Okay. Look, look really, really <laughs> carefully, really closely. It's actually a strontium um, atom, and it's the little, if you go to this article, well, the link is there. It's best to see it there. It's like this little tiny blue dot in the center, right where that arrow is, basically. Um, there's a little tiny blue dot, and it's a strontium atom that's been embedded in a strong electrical field and hit with a bunch of lasers. <laughs> so basically, we've got a, an atom. If, we think, if you think about an atom, it's, it's so small that we can't even comprehend how tiny it is. And even if you had billions of atoms, you might be able to see them together. But an individual atom has, has been very difficult to try and capture an image because it's surrounded by an electron cloud and uh, the only way we can interact with it is with other electrons and that repels things and pushes things around. And it's been, it's been a big challenge for science. But this is a very interesting way to capture this and basically suspend it uh, in this ion trap and get an idea of what this thing looked like. Now, this isn't exactly what it would look like because no. the lasers are adding color and, and the images that we're seeing there. But it's, a, it's quite an amazing feat to be able to capture this and a very big jump in scientific understanding. And, and it's not going to add a lot of knowledge to what we think right. about atoms and how they work, but just cool to but be able cool. to do it's things. Cool. Mm -hmm. cool. You can see it. So. so we've got, I'm following along on Answers in Genesis Facebook page. We've got two people saying good day from Australia. One actually says good day, but um, <laughs> I, I don't believe them. I think it's nighttime there. It is. It is. So yeah. I, I think they're not being honest with us. Maybe like 12 or 13. Maybe they're wishing us a good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. This next one um, is cellular landscape. So this is a basically um, an image, a 3D rendering of the inside of a cell that was created for um, a company. And so they've made that picture basically um, available so people can see it. And um, it's really, really cool. It uses a lot of different types of microscopy. It's not like you can just, boom, take a snapshot of a cell. Okay, it doesn't work like that. Um, but this is using lots of different, like um, they used x-rays, they used nuclear magnetic resonance, they used cryo-electron microscopy. Okay, all these things to try to image 
what's going on inside the cell. And it's truly amazing. Now, so, it's not colored like so, this. Too. So Roger and I are going to test Georgia to see if she actually knows <laughs> what these things are about. <laughs> I do know what, I mean, I am a molecular geneticist, so I can point out what most yeah. of... What a lot else? of these things are very, I mean, they're identifiable based on structures right. that we've learned. This and guy studied. here, this is the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So this is the powerhouse of the cell. Um, and it's showing all the internal membranes that are there. These are all proteins embedded in there that are making our energy. Um, this is actually the membrane of the cell here. Um, and this is probably right here. This looks like a tight junction of some kind that kind of combines two cells to make them stick together. Um, this is the nuclear membrane right here. And this is like DNA and RNA would be inside of here. So the nucleus of the cell. These are nuclear pores where things can go in and out of the nucleus. This is probably the endoplasmic reticulum here, um, which has lots of, makes the protein. So the RNA comes out of the nucleus and goes here to be made into a protein. This is the Golgi apparatus. These are, one of these are probably lysosomes. That's the garbage can of the cell. Um, so there is a lot. So what does this tell you? It's amazingly complex what's going on inside your cells. And this is a very diluted view. If you were to actually yep. add these, these pieces in there at the actual concentrations and you add in all of the protein pieces and the amino acid components and all those transport pieces that are um, involved in connecting those parts together, you wouldn't be able to see anything because it would be so filled with activity. Yeah. And, and this is a stop frame. Yeah, it's and it's three-dimensional. You got yeah. the immune, right. and it fixes itself and it replicates itself. Yeah. Wow. Boy, we got a lucky break with evolution, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> now you've shown some images in uh, mm -hmm. your talks, like the intelligent design talk mm -hmm. you do in others, that show the animated mechanisms of right. a lot of these things working mm -hmm. and how they. I mean, they look like. The, the trans, some of the transport proteins looks like a little guy with a sack on his back right. walking down the walking. road and, and pulling these along the microtubules, which you can see through the yeah, middle there. Yeah, microtubules right here. Right there. Yeah. And all of those things are happening at incredibly rapid rates. I mean, the DNA is unzipping and being uh, replicated and then transcribed, and then all of these pieces are happening at lightning speed inside the cell, and yet it all just happened by accident. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, too, like, it looks, might look chaotic to you and I, but it's actually very organized. Um, this is extremely organized. Uh, otherwise, the cell couldn't function properly. It's not just things randomly floating around in space <laughs> waiting for them to get to the right location. It has highways and byways and um, inside the cell. It's just like a little city almost. Um, and so, yeah, so it just, to me, when you look at that, it's amazing to think that there's people that will look at that exact same thing and say, this came about by random chance over eons of time. Yeah. And something like this was kind of part of my conversion story. When I was studying uh, at, um, in Montana State, the biochemistry instructor put this transparency up. It's this, yeah. So for your kids, it's this old <laughs> piece of plastic that had black stuff squiggled on it and it had projected on the wall. And it was just the glycolysis pathway down the middle, one of the main metabolic pathways in the cell, and all the side reactions that are going on. And there are thousands of these interactions and there was this moment sitting there in that classroom where I said, maybe this all just didn't happen by yeah. chance. Yeah. And so seeing this complexity, uh, seeing the organization here should make anyone stop and think. But we know that Romans 1 tells us that it's, it's the darkness of man's heart and wanting to suppress those things in unrighteousness that stops these scientists who recognize all of these things in this complexity 
from acknowledging the creator in that way. Yep. The Australian, one of the Australians here on, is saying, I'm using some pretty big words to process at 5 a.m. <laughs> on a Thursday morning. Well, Georgia, you passed. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> you got all of it right. All right. Evolution doesn't work the way you think it does. Okay. So this article was actually That's written by sure. an evolutionary biologist. And one of the things that um, Roger and I, since we are biologists, were saying was we actually appreciated um, her honesty in this article and talking about evolution and making sure we don't like oversimplify it or just kind of chuck it in there and say it explains all this stuff when it really doesn't. Yeah. Oftentimes the, from the evolutionary side, uh, you get these canned answers and these simple little quips. Oh, well, it just happened this way. And they really tend to promote a lot of misinformation and, and misconceptions about how these uh, processes actually function over time from an evolutionary perspective. And then the layman gets a false notion of those types of things. And then they perpetuate those things. And one of the things she talks about in here is the, uh, the sociological impacts that that can have as well. So if you think about applying biological evolutionary ideas to social structures, the example she gives is the baby's born and it looks like the dad. And everybody says, oh, yeah, that's because the dad needs to care for it. And in our evolutionary view, if it didn't look like the dad, the dad would just want to abandon it. And so that's an evolutionary adaptation that helps us survive, but that's not true. And those types of myths get perpetuated. And so lay people hear those examples and they think they're compelling evidence for evolution right. when really they're not. Yeah. And she, you know, she says evolution is often treated as synonymous with natural selection, but even she realizes it's not. Um, and, you know, even though she might think that natural selection over eons of time could accomplish um, evolution. She is an evolutionary biologist after all. So she does believe that this happened, but she realizes that natural selection is something that we can observe in the present and um, that it is something that um, at least in the present isn't leading one kind of organism to evolve into a different kind of organism. It's just leading to adaptation and speciation, which is what the article is really filled with examples of. Um, things that we do see in the present happening. And the thing is, is that even if you gave things like natural selection and mutations more time, okay, so her idea would be, well, this is what we observe in the present, but if we just give it more time, one thing can evolve into another, but it can't because those mechanisms, it doesn't matter how much time you give them, they don't add the genetic information that you need to go from one kind of organism to a different kind of organism. Yeah. So they still can't do that. And she discussed ideas like the founder effect and genetic drift and, and some other types of ideas that explain these processes, but again, it's within the kinds of organisms. And she makes a leap then, if this much change happens within right. these kinds of organisms, then it must have happened over millions of years or hundreds of millions of years, and we could have got a massive amount of change. But that's not a necessary conclusion from that statement. We have another hypothesis that God created those things in distinct kinds and that, yeah, he created genetic diversity within those kinds and they can have adaptations and variations within those kinds, but they're never going to change into another kind. So she hasn't eliminated the competing hypothesis. So she hasn't done good science in that sense. She's done the same thing in, with social issues too, because she does make a leap later on to talk about things that she assumes to be true about our, our society that have not been demonstrated. and. So she, she'll jump in. I like one statement. She said, unfortunately, understanding that there's no biological basis for race. We've been saying that for so long. Right, We've been pointing right. that out there. From a biological perspective, there is one human race. And she acknowledges that. And then she jumps into, you know, how 
white supremacy and system, systemic racism and all that, those things are real and right. that dominates America. And uh, so she really goes off, I, I think, into an area that she isn't even the point of the article. But I, I think it's helpful for us to understand as, as Christians and as creationists that sometimes we do similar sort of things. We'll use some bad arguments. We'll look at the, mm -hmm. the mountains and see how beautiful everything is. And say, oh, look at the world God has made. God didn't uh, make the mountains no. like that. That's a result of the flood and yeah. everything else that happened afterwards. And those things are full of death and suffering. And, you know, when you see fossils, and that's, that's not the way God made the world. And so we're, we kind of put that, those false ideas out right. there. And then people look at that and say, really? God made a world full of death and suffering? And no, yeah. he didn't. Yeah. yeah. One area that she definitely hits on that I did disagree with, while most of her explanations I mm -hmm. thought were, were great, and I would agree with even um, some of the applications of them, she said, she makes the statement, evolution does not attempt to explain the origin of life. Now, what she's trying to do here is take a very narrow definition of evolution and just mean biological evolution once life originated. She tries to distinguish that from the process of life originating on its own. But if you're going to hold a materialistic worldview, one that says nature and matter is all that exists, you have to have an explanation of how life got organized in the first place before you can describe how evolution happened in the past. So she's starting at step Q and asking you to go to step Z and asking you to ignore all the way back to step A. So she's eliminating all of those original ideas. But even within the scientific evolutionary world, they talk about cosmological evolution or cosmic evolution with star formation and the formations of galaxies. They talk about chemical um, evolution with the origin of life issue and geologic evolution with the origin of the planets. And all of those things are important concepts. So in uh, chapter eight of this book, um, How Do We Know the Bible is True, volume two, I've got a section that deals with that and talks about it. It's from a theistic worldview perspective, but it lays out that distinction between cosmological, geological, chemical, and biological evolution. They're all part of a materialistic worldview. If you're going to be a materialist, you've got to have all of yeah, those together. Yeah, and, and all the time we see this, evolutionists don't want to deal with the origin of life issue. They just want to deal with what happens after that because they just don't really know. They don't have any, they, they don't have any good explanations for that. But yet, there's no point to talking about biological evolution, how all this happened afterwards, if you can't even explain how it started in the beginning, um, how that would have happened, how all these other types of evolutions that he's talking about would have had to happen. Um, another great book resource that we have available on dealing with this issue of mutations and natural selection, how they don't work for evolution is by Nathaniel Jenison called Replacing Darwin. Um, and uh, it's really good to give, again, starting with the sort of the biblical standpoint and understanding, again, how the evidence and the research and the research that Dr. Jenison done really lines up with a biblical account of origins and how everything comes, was created by God. And yes, we get speciation and adaptation after that. But it's not one kind of animal evolving into a different kind. And he also has a version um, called um, This Book Made Simple, <laughs> uh, replacing Darwin, Darwin Made Simple. So if you want sort of the short version of it, maybe a little simpler, um, less technical version, this is really good as well. So but there we, aren't people like pictures. Me. Lots of great, great pictures in this book. <laughs> All right. Um, Nancy commented, since Tim and I are on and we're both giants, it should be the G team because we're the giant, the the giant team. <laughs> <laughs> but oh we both goodness. like the Packers. We're both Packers fans. That's so. G. We got the G yeah. on the helmet. Yeah, G on the helmet right yeah. there. Okay, oh, no football talk. <laughs> All right.
Moving on. Hey, Tiny... at, least you, at least you knew that was football. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> Tiny toucan-like bird with a single tooth flew during the dinosaur era. Okay, so this is talking about, they call it a bizarre bird. I don't really like calling things. I mean, what God created is wonderful and beautiful. It may look strange to us, but I don't know about bizarre. To it doesn't me, look it, that just, bizarre to me. It's but... just a reminder of the amazing variety of creatures yeah. that must have been there before the flood, things we don't even get to see right. today. This mm -hmm. is like a nine centimeter bird, so just a few inches basically um, big. And they said it kind of looks like a modern day toucan, but it's probably not any, like it's not any relation to the toucan. It's not in the toucan kind or anything. But they're remarking about how its beak, because the reason they're calling it, you know, looking kind of like a toucan is because its, its beak sort of does look a little bit like that. So they're saying that what happened was, even though this bird is not a toucan, uh, that the toucans and this bird, you know, it's amazing how they kind of converge onto the same structure for their beak, even though they're not technically related. That's a great story, yeah, nice but there's story, no but... explanation from the genetic perspective of how those types of changes could happen. Even if you think about the, um, these birds having a common ancestor, they're not in the same kind. And so from a biblical perspective, we wouldn't think they would be able to transmit that information in any way. But God has created these organisms with amazing diversity within their genomes when they start. And that can be selected for through different processes, sexual selection, natural selection, uh, different types of pressures, and all of those things are going to um, express themselves in different ways in different environments. And again, it, to me, it's just a reminder of the amazing diversity that must have been on the planet before God brought the judgment of the flood, and that we could, if we could just get a, a glimpse of those things, even in these fossils, we'd be able to understand how much more diverse the world was before that judgment came. You want to add anything, Tim? I no, think you guys covered it. Mean, I want to know, does a thing like Fruit Loops? I mean, that's all I care <laughs> Yeah, and so this is just a, a, um, a type of bird that is extinct that we don't have around anymore. And it's not surprising that God would use similar designs in different organisms, right? There's nothing against that. And we see we designers see that all the time. do that all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And we see that with other animals. It's not just the, the birds where you have right. birds of a different kind that are that have similar traits. You see that with mammals that are that way as well. Mm -hmm. That big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somebody wants to know um, how tall Tim is compared to Roger. I'm 5'18". And I'm 5'20 and three quarters. <laughs> <laughs> and we we'll, didn't even rehearse that. We'll let you do the math. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Canada to protect unborn chips in Jane Goodall Act while ignoring unborn humans targeted for abortion. So... This is about, um, like says, the Jane Goodall Act that was recently passed in Canada to basically um, make it a criminal offense uh, to, to protect great apes and elephants that are in captivity in Canada and ban the import of ivory and hunting trophies. And also a criminal offense, I should say, to obtain reproductive materials such as an embryo. So they're making it illegal to do these things to protect the elephant and the great apes, but at the same time, allowing abortion. And in Canada, even up until the time of birth, where children are born and then left to die. And when we think about the, uh, the foundation for the argument here, he gives primarily an emotional argument. We could make a scientific argument, but the real argument we need to be making here is that humans are made in the image of God and their lives are worth protecting because of that. 
animals are not made in the image of God, but they're still the creatures just like us. They're creations of God and we deserve, uh, they deserve to be protected and respected, but we should never do it at the expense of humans. We, we are called to have dominion over the earth. We're called to be good stewards of those uh, resources God has given us, and animals are one of those. But to say that these animals deserve more respect and more uh, attention and more care than humans does shows that many of these people who are thinking from this perspective really see humans as a, a blight or a virus on the earth, and that the natural state would be if humans weren't here to overrun these things and um, take over and manipulate things in ways that they don't think happened in the past. But from the biblical perspective, we think that that is how God intended things from the beginning. Humans have always been part of the natural environment, the natural order that God created. But that doesn't mean we haven't done destructive and sinful things. But we can, we can make clear lines when it comes to animal life and human life, and we need to value that human life above the animal life. And yet these are the same people that would say that 99.9% of all species on earth have gone extinct well before man has been around. Well, who's doing all of that? It wasn't people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But there's a quoting here from Chesterton that we talked about before that was really good. Right. Uh, Wherever there is animal worship, there is human sacrifice. That is both symbolically and literally a real truth of, human, of historical experience. And which, if you think through it, that's, yeah. that's profound. And, and later on, there, there's a statement that says, there's nothing wrong with loving animals. There's something profoundly wrong with loving them more than our own children. And just think about this as Christians. How often do we see this not just outside the church? How many times as Christians are people tempted to put their animals above their own children, or at least at the same level, treating them as if they're just equal members of the family? It's a temptation. It's, it's strange right. that people would do that, but there are people that do. And uh, we have a, a video that, with Ray Comfort where he's interviewing mm -hmm. people on the street. If, oh, there, if you I could rescue the dog, one. there's a mm -hmm. house burning down and you could rescue the dog or your neighbor, which one almost every time they say the dog. Yeah. And it's people, you see people worshiping the creature rather than the creator. You know, they're worshiping, um, in this case, literal creatures like, you know, animals, but they're worshiping those things instead of worshiping God who made them and designed them. And, and we should take care of animals. That's part of the dominion mandate is to be good stewards of um, the animals that God has placed under our care. I mean, we need to do that. But um, at the same, one of the things I was remarking about um, previously was that, you know, when I see those, they have those commercials on TV for the dogs that are kept or, or cats are kept under inhumane conditions. And they want us to feel really bad about that. And while I do, I say, I will, I, in my mind, I'm thinking I'll give money to that when abortion becomes illegal, right? Because I would rather my money and what I think about take care of humans first and try to save humans first and foremost. And then we'll worry about, you know, I'm saying that, I'm not saying you should abuse animals or anything like that, or it shouldn't help animals. But what I'm saying is humans come first, right? And we need to be taking care of them and making sure that they're protected before the animals. Yeah, and, that, and that's a value system that's based in biblical priorities, right. not arbitrarily, but it's one that's founded in how God has created things. I always thought the reason that animals look sad in those videos is because they're playing like a Sarah McLaughlin song or something. <laughs> that would make anybody feel bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The Last Children of Down Syndrome. All right, so this is a, a very lengthy article, but worth the read. It's actually very um, interesting about um, a, looking at a lot of the prenatal genetic testing and genetic screening that has been going on, especially over in countries like Denmark and Norway and Iceland and places like that, where it is a sin, and it's available here too, but in those countries, um, abortion is um, the 
basically preferred over giving birth to children that have Down syndrome. Over 90% of women will choose an abortion when they have a genetic screening test that shows Down syndrome. Um, in Iceland, it's even, it's very, it's like 99% choose abortion. Um, it's very, very high. And so that's why they're calling it the last children of Down syndrome. It's not that they somehow eradicated the disease, rather they have literally killed the children who have this. And so this article is kind of talking about the, the, the person who wrote it is struggling with, is that the right thing to do? Yeah, it's very interesting throughout the article that somebody's coming from a secular perspective and recognizing there's something not quite right about this, but you can't tell, you can't go against a woman's right to choose. That's the mindset that she's got. Mm -hmm. And then she's, again, looking at it from a utilitarian perspective, what's best for society? Well, if they're a big drain on the system, well, then they should be aborted. But at the same time, if we get rid of everybody who has certain things that we don't considered to be desirable, is that going to be harmful for society in the long run? Because then we don't develop the empathy that we need to have for people who aren't perfect, who aren't normal, who aren't right. just like us. And um, it, everybody's got problems. We yeah. all have and defects in our genetics. That's a right there. Where's Wrong the line? Mutants. How do we decide yeah. where to draw that line of what defect is worthy of death? And again, if you don't have in view that these are image bearers of God who are worthy of dignity and respect in that fact alone, you're going to come up with some arbitrary line. And that line has only been made possible to cross because of technology. We now have the ability to do techniques like amniocentesis, where we can draw fluid that has the fetal cells. We can tell the sex from those cells. We can tell if there are any, uh, the likelihood of chromosomal abnormalities, any other types of things. And with today's technology, we can take that genetic material and amplify it and look for specific gene markers right. and for different diseases. And all of those things uh, have only been around for decades, less than 100 years in any of those cases. And it's a technology that has forced people to choose whether they're going to keep this child or not. Now, that should be an unthinkable thought for us. But as we go back and think about this through history, that's the same thing that happened in the Roman civilization. They would just had the baby first, recognize the defects, and then they abandoned it to die. So we're not doing anything different than the Romans did. We're just doing it in a clean, sterilized, quiet, locked room where nobody has to hear the child screaming. And that's the, that's the most chilling thing to me about all of this um, analysis before birth. And if I know what I'm going to have, am I going to keep it? And that's a, that's a decision each couple's going to have right. to make. My wife and I chose not to do those tests because mm -hmm. we knew there was no chance we were going to right. abort the child regardless. And we would learn those things when it was born. But Knowing we don't want ahead to, of time is, yeah, can be We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so yes. to speak, in that sense, because genetic screening can actually be really good, especially if it's something that is a known issue in your family, yeah. like there's a known disease, because sometimes they can do in utero treatments for mm -hmm. the child. They know they can do treatments right after, immediately after they're born. It can help prepare parents for what's coming, you know. So it, the genetic screening is not bad in and of itself. It's what people choose to do with the, the results of the genetic screening that is bad. Yeah, it's because so. abortion is even an option right. that, it, that that's, a, yeah. that's a danger. My sister had this, this test done uh, about 19 years ago, and 
they told her there's a good chance that her little girl was going to be born with Down syndrome. Well, she said, they, and so they said, well, you should consider abortion. She said, no, we'd never consider that either right. way. Well, that little girl just uh, finished her first semester in college, uh, does not have Down syndrome, but even if she did, uh, you know, she would be loved the same. And, right. uh, you know, we, we talked about it. We don't want to get to the we don't want to just only make the argument like, well, they can have happy lives. They can, you yeah. know, but this is important to point out because that's one of the arguments people use for abortion. Yeah. Well, they won't live a successful life. They won't have a happy life. Well, last month there was a, a person with Down syndrome, the first one to complete an Ironman triathlon. 140.6 miles swimming, biking, and running. And I ridiculous. could probably do that. <laughs> uh, so congratulations to, to that, that young man. That was amazing to read about that. But... Um, it, it, we talk about this in our exhibit, Fearfully right. Wonderfully Made. We have a little section called Prenatal Genocide where we're talking about how these countries are eliminating children that have Down syndrome because they're viewed as being undesirable or unacceptable. Right. And the fact that they're made in God's image means that they are desirable. Uh, that doesn't, it, it's easier for us to become uh, outraged and to um, not have empathy for the mm -hmm. person who's making that decision. I mean, sometimes... We, we might have it pretty easy in our upbringing and in our own homes, and some people grow up in very, very difficult circumstances, and they don't want to see that perpetuated. So you try to appreciate the, the difficulty mm -hmm. of the decision sometimes, but that doesn't mean that abortion is ever the right option. That's, yeah, and that's where the church can be right. coming alongside of those families and those uh, women if they're abandoned by the fathers and those types of situations and really be providing direct support. And uh, we know of many organizations who do that, who are reaching out to try to connect with the parents, um, give them resources, uh, their baby registries with various ministries where they'll, they'll connect with mothers who decide to keep the baby and need support and their Amazon registries fill yeah. up in a day and those things are provided. And that's, a, that's an amazing way that the church is acting as, as Christ to the rest of the world and showing those things and uh, sharing the gospel and the real hope that yeah. it's not all this world that we're focused on, but there's a world after this that we can be looking forward to. And adoption would be an option. Oh, yes, as well. absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, from a genetic standpoint, we're to the point where we are, there are some genetic editing technologies that have been developed where we can go in and fix things sometimes. I mean, we're getting close to that point. Um, and so those can be good things. I mean, part of what we do, we want to reverse the curse, so to speak. Mm -hmm. We want to work against that. You know, we want to try to help people. Um, but again, how far do you go with it? And when you don't start with the biblical foundation and biblical worldview, you know, you starts with, well, like they were saying, you know, screening for Down syndrome or screening for certain disabilities. Well, then it's screening for the possibility of developing breast cancer or Alzheimer. And then it goes to things like schizophrenia and autism. And, Which they and, said was the number one question that right. people asked is they're screening for autism. Yeah. Because that's what people are, are seeking, parents are seeking to eliminate. So if, where do you stop? Right. Well, what if it's <laughs> leukemia? Well, I'm, right. I'm out. Um, and yep. it's, I'm glad that they've been able to figure out how to fix certain things genetically. Right. I've told you before the type of leukemia mm -hmm. I had, the bottom halves of the 15th and 17th chromosomes right. switched. And suddenly it was creating a bunch of cells that didn't work properly. And I was mm -hmm. uh, suffocating. It was blocking out everything, all the red blood cells from doing what they needed to do. Right. And uh, thankfully, people learned how to fix that. So, yeah. So, I mean, there, there can be some good things that we can do, but the problem is how far is man going to take this and, and realizing too, and even she realizes, the person that wrote this article realizes that really, you know, even though she's not a Christian, that it shouldn't just be 
um, that we value human life because of what those humans can accomplish. But whether we value it, now she doesn't believe this, but we would say we value it because that person is made in the image of God and has value regardless of what they can accomplish in life. And so that's where we need to be arguing from too and understanding and helping people because that is an ultimate argument, so to speak, because we're starting with the word of God um, with that argument. So... As we point out in the exhibit. So if you haven't yeah. been there yet, the no. live studio audience, you've got to go check that out. It's right out in Legacy Lobby, right out these doors. And those of you watching on... Yeah. And those are great... You've got to come in and check it out. Yeah, great ways to connect to those things, to mm -hmm. gospel truths and have gospel conversations, pointing yeah. people to hope in Christ as well. Yep. Yeah. Okay, well, we're out of time for today and we'll see you back on Monday.